So what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been looking not only of the story of God pursuing people through Jonah, we've been trying to share with you stories of how God pursues His people here at Missio so that you get to hear tangibly how God is doing the work that He does. And so this week, this will be our, our final installation video, but we wanted you to hear the story of one of our pastors. Pastor Justin was gracious enough to sit down and to share the story of how God pursued him. So let's take a look at Pastor Justin's story. I got saved my junior year of high school, and instantly I knew that that was nothing of myself. The moment, the time, the response was completely supernatural, and I knew God had done something in me to cause me to begin to hate my sin and love Jesus. I graduated high school and was uh, pursuing ministry. I knew from the time that I had gotten saved, God was calling me into some type of ministry. I went to a small little Bible college in Columbus and it didn't work out for me well. I, I lasted about a semester for all kinds of reasons, my own immaturity, my own misunderstandings of what ministry was. And so I moved back home and I found myself trying to find a new church home. And I found one uh, close to my mother's house and I began attending and I began creating wonderful relationships through the youth group and through the leaders of the youth group there. And I was growing in my walk with Christ. I was growing in my understanding of the Bible and what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. But all of a sudden one day my world kind of got rocked when one of the key youth leaders that I really admired and looked up to uh, disqualified himself from ministry by having a relationship with a girl in our youth group. And it shattered a lot of people's lives in that moment. And the way that I responded to it was kind of just being done with this whole Christian thing. So I decided that I was going to reindulge in my former life before I had even known who Jesus was. I got my stuff together, I moved to Dayton, and I began pursuing the party scene. I found myself entrenched in promiscuity and substance abuse, but the whole time that I was there, I knew God had not stopped chasing me down. I would have conversations about Jesus and who he was and what he had done for me in the midst of these reckless party atmospheres. My phone would dial people from my old church in my pocket and they would hear the conversations and they would hear the language I was using and the party scene that I had found myself in, but the whole time they said they would just pray for me while the phone dialed them. We finally find ourselves in this moment of time where I had gotten a Bible and I started reading the scriptures again. I started trying to pray and understand who Jesus was and this whole time I felt this conviction, I felt this sense of God's love was greater for me than my rejection of who he was. And God used my now wife Katie as the final um, kind of catalyst to bring me back to him. She came into my life and uh, she pursued me through um, just loving me where I was at. She came and visited me in my apartment. She would come and spend time with me and she would demonstrate Christ's love and she would speak truth to my situation. And 
I finally was able, after a year of running away from him, to move back home and start going back to church, start living a life that glorified him, and start pursuing Katie so that we could be married. God used that whole moment in time with her to bring me back to a faithful walk with him, uh, to caused me to pursue marrying her, and uh, even now today to set me up to be able to fulfill that call of ministry that I knew I had felt my junior year of high school. I praise God for his faithfulness and his unrelenting pursuit of a sinner like me. See, we have a God that, that, that pursues people. And like I said this morning, um, you're here because God is pursuing you. You're about to hear His Word, hopefully, for you. And my prayer as we dig into it is that you soften your heart. Because what's going to happen as God pursues us is some of us are going to harden our hearts toward, toward God coming at us. But, but what He wants and, and where he, he really does His amazing work is as our hearts are softened. <coughs> Excuse me. So, that said... Let's take a look at what God says to us this morning. Jonah chapter 3, and I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. Jonah chapter 3. You're going to find some fascinating parallels between Jonah 3 and Jonah chapter 1, and we'll take a look at that. But Jonah chapter 3 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily, to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. God, I pray that, that Your Word would soften our hearts so that Jesus can become the satisfying joy that we long for. Here's what I want to do. I, I want to take a look at kind of a 40,000-foot view of this text. I want us to see it as a whole, and then we'll go back and we'll look at it in its particular parts. Sound good? All right, let's take a look at the overall uh, what's happening in this story. The first thing that I want us to see is that God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible in the Old Testament, who usually gets this bad rap for being kind of grumpy, like he just woke up 
hasn't grown up yet and gone to college and learned that you're supposed to be nice. That God is a God who is full of mercy and grace. Do, do you see this? I mean, look at the way that, that the first couple of verses start to unfold. It, it starts with something that I don't like as a dad. Okay, let's, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The, Lord of the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Does that sound familiar? It's almost word for word. There are a couple of changes. There are three changes, right? The first change is in verse 1, where it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And that's what I, as a dad, don't like. I don't know if your dad has allowed this phrase to come out of his face hole, but out of my face hole comes the phrase, don't make me repeat myself. Has your dad ever said that to you? Have you dads said that to your kids? Like, that's one of the most frustrating things in my world is that I have to repeat myself. I've laid down the edict. This is my expectation. Walk ye in it, right? But the creator God who created the land and the sea and all that is in them says to Jonah a second time. Why? Because he's gracious and he's merciful. He's the God of second chances, right? And, and he, he goes on. Verse 2, he says that he's, he's going to give them the message that he will tell you. Some of us get caught up in the details of God's message, and what he's saying to us is, obey first, the details will come second. But, but I'm a God of second chances, I'm a God of mercy, and I'm a God of grace. And so what does Jonah do? Jonah arose and goes to Nineveh. He doesn't arise and go to Tarshish and flee. He goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And we need a God that is merciful and gracious to us, don't we? We need a God that's merciful and gracious. And that's the God of the Bible. And it's so different from religion because religion teaches us that you have to work harder and do better and try more. And if you don't, you're left hopeless. But the God of the Bible comes in and he says, no, no, no. I am a God who is a God of mercy and of grace. Now, now, not only do we see this in his dealing with Jonah, we see it in his dealing with Nineveh. Because when you get down to verse 10, what does he say? He says that God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We have a God that even in the Old Testament, the grumpy God who hadn't grown up yet, is full of mercy and of grace. And I want to submit this. If you haven't come to the point where you realize that you can get away with sinfulness, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Do you hear what I'm saying? You can get away with at least violence and direct disobedience to God, and He is a God of mercy and grace and second chances. That's what's happening in the book of Jonah. And if you don't think that God is that full of mercy, then you don't know God. Amen? Now, what I'm telling you is dangerous, isn't it? Because I'm telling you that you can get away with sinfulness. Isn't that what I'm telling you? It is. It's dangerous. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that you can get away with sinning, then you don't know God. So let me tell you the flip side of that as well. If you abuse that truth, then you don't know God. You don't have relationship with Him. 
And so both things are true, but if you really come to the point where you understand the God of the Bible, He's coming to you and He's saying, there's nothing that you can do that will cause my love for you to cease because I see you through the love that I have for Jesus, which ought to cause us to respond in thanksgiving and praise and worship. That's the God of the Bible. You can get away with sinning, but if you abuse that, then you don't know who He is. It should cause our hearts to to want to do what we do out of thanksgiving and love and response. So how does he present that? That's That's the whole. What are its parts? I see two movements in chapter three of the book of Jonah. Verses one to four, we see what I'm calling the revelation. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. And I'm going to give you the message as you go. It's this enormous city. It takes three days' journey to go all the way across. Jonah gets in about a third of the way, and he starts to cry out against them. And what he says is, God is angry with this place, that what you're doing is is not only going to destroy you, it's going to have an effect on the people around you. And God is through. He is angry with you. What Jonah is doing seems utterly ridiculous, doesn't it? He's this small guy from a small town, and he goes into a great city. He only gets about a third of the way into it, and he says, do you see everything around you? You keep up what you're doing, and God is going to overthrow it. He doesn't even really give them that much hope. He basically just says, in 40 days, God is done with you, right? I mean, that that message is, is somewhat ridiculous, but I love that he's doing it because it sets up for us an example of what we should be doing. We should have the guts to follow through with what God tells us to tell people, and that is sometimes we've got to tell you hard truths. We've got to tell you that the sin that you're committing is going to unravel your life, and it's going to unravel the lives of the people who are around you. God's Word is not always easy to deliver, and it's not always easy to receive. Right? Sometimes it feels utterly ridiculous. There are some among us who want to emasculate God and strip Him of His rightful place as the Lord, the God of heaven, the one who made the, hev- the seas and the dry land. We want to strip Him of the right to be the sovereign over Israel and over all foreign nations. We want to present to people a false God. And so we do a lot to soften the blow. We do a lot to hide the reality of what God is saying to people. But if we will be faithful then we will reveal to people what God is revealing to them. So that's the revelation. What happens? Well, we see what happens in verses 5 to 10. That's the second part. The Ninevites respond. And so the first part is the revelation. The second part is the response. Revelation and response. The Ninevites repent when they hear God's proclamation. And this is one of the things that, that I have the great privilege of doing. I'm, I'm a church planter. No, some of you don't know what that means. So let me tell you what that means. I have the privilege of starting churches. And so God led me to Asheville, North Carolina about 11 years ago to start Missio Day Church for the very first time. We started Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina about 11 years ago. And, and uh, then after a couple of years, we came up here and we started Missio Day Church here in Cincinnati, and, and we're, we've planted in West, and we're, we're going to see more church plants all around the city because that's what I want to see God do. I want, I want more and more people going out and proclaiming the truth of God so that sinners can be converted, they can be redeemed, they can, be, they can go from being God's enemies to being God's friends. 
But one of the joys in being a church planner is you get to kind of set all the expectations. And, and I've seen this pattern in the Bible for years and years. And, and so when we designed our liturgy or our structure for worship, I said I wanted it to follow this pattern of revelation and response. God declares who He is, and we respond to it. And so that may be something that's unique and new as you come into Missio, and maybe something that you're not used to. I come from a background where what we did is we used the music to warn, pe- warn people up to the preaching of the Word. That's not a bad way of doing it. I just wanted to be very clear on God reveals Himself, and then we respond, right? If you read through the book of Exodus, as God rescues His people out of slavery, He rescues them, declares Himself, and then in chapter 15, they sing a song about it. And so that's how our worship gatherings are designed. There's a call to worship. This is who God is, right? And then we hear from His Word. This is what He expects us to do. This is how Jesus accomplishes it. And then we want you to celebrate the beginning of your response in faith as it takes you out of here to live a life of response. That's the biblical pattern, revelation and response. How did the Ninevites respond? Well, they repented. One of the primary reasons Jonah was written was to rebuke Israel for its faithlessness in revealing to the nations who God was so that they could repent. How do I know that? Well, because he tells us, 1 Kings chapter 8, here's what it says in verse 56, "'Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel.'" according to all that He promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promise, which He spoke by Moses, His servant. The Lord our God be with us as He was with our fathers. May He not leave us or forsake us, that He may incline our hearts to Him to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His rules, which He commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may He maintain the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel as each day requires. What is that cause? It is this, verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. And so what God is doing is He's sending His people to follow His ways, to proclaim His Word so that they may know He is the only true God. And here becomes this eye-opening reality. If we would proclaim the truth of God, our enemies may stop being our enemies. They may turn and become the people of God, and they may become our brothers. That's good news, isn't it? That if we would proclaim the truth of God, our enemies may not remain our enemies if they hear the Word of God for them. If they hear the revelation and have an opportunity to respond, God is angry with what you're doing. That's all Jonah said. Forty days, and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. The hope is if, if we would proclaim that, people would repent. Because here's what's going on continually throughout the book of Jonah. Here's the big idea. God's pursuit, right? He's pursuing people. God's pursuit is accomplished through the proclamation of God's Word. God's pursuit is accomplished through the proclamation of God's Word. And so what I want us to do is I want us to consider the reality that God has has called us, created us, and commissions us to be a people who proclaim His Word to people who need to hear it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But like Jonah, 
we have a difficult time experiencing the pursuit of God's people because we're not faithful to proclaim His Word. Like we ought to, almost on a daily, weekly basis, be able to say, we're experiencing God converting people because they're hearing the truth of His love for them. But we don't always see that because we're not faithful at proclaiming it. And listen, when I say that, I include myself. When we first moved to Cincinnati about eight years ago, and, we're, and I'm here as a church planter, I've got to now explain to my neighbors what a church planter is, because they don't know, right? We don't even always know what that is, right? Now, I'm, like, I'm, in the, I'm a pastor of a church, and so I'm like, even calling myself a church planter is somewhat, you know, unfaithful. But when you're, when you're new to a city, and like you're going to start a church, all we had at the time was my wife, and at the time, three kids. So we're telling people, like, they ask you, what do you do? I'm a church planter. And all they hear is church. So like, well, well, where is your church, right? Because a church meets in a building. A church isn't the people. We all know that, right? I'm being facetious. A church is the people. And, and so, but no, they're asking, well, where do you meet? And it's like, well, I mean, every couple of weeks, it's my wife and I, we meet in our living room. We have Bible study. So we're not, we're, we're trying to develop the, the church as it goes. And so rather than tell them and have that awkward conversation, uh, things come out like, you know, I'm an entrepreneurial. I, I, I'm starting a nonprofit, right? All of those things that aren't really true, but they're not really false. But what I'm not telling everybody is God wants the people of Cincinnati to repent from their sin and trust Him as Lord God, Savior, and Christ. You want to have that conversation? You want to study the Bible together, right? I'm, I'm not always doing that. And so I, I want to share a few ways that, that I've struggled to proclaim it and, and maybe, I think it will probably resonate with many of you. One of the first ways that I've struggled to proclaim the gospel is, is in the way that I'm, I'm kind of just afraid of how people will respond. Let me ask you, do you guys keep your mouth shut? You don't tell people about the love that you have for God or the love that God has for you because you're afraid of their response. You're afraid that they won't accept you. And if we're really honest, like we're not as concerned with people's acceptance of God into their lives as much as we are their acceptance of us. And so we don't declare with, with truth or, or any sense of clarity that we're Christians, that we are forgiven sinners, that they could be forgiven sinners if they would put their trust in Jesus. And we don't declare the truth uh, of God's Word. We don't tell them that they need to stop their sin, and if they don't, that, God, that God's anger will overwhelm them. And it might impact the people around them because we're afraid that they won't accept us. We're afraid of the response that they, they might have. And, and sometimes what we do, in, instead of opening up our mouths and being bold to declare, is we, we, try, to, we try to kind of sneak the gospel in there, right? You've heard the, the statement that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which he really didn't say it, but um, we'll, we'll just, because it's been attributed to him, we'll give him the credit for it. Um, it's this idea, he says, uh, preach the gospel everywhere, and when necessary, use words. I get the spirit behind it. We want to be able to serve people and demonstrate the, the truth that we believe that, that Jesus is alive and loves us. But here's the, here's the hard reality. God's Word, the gospel, is a message that must be proclaimed. We, yes, we need to be nice. We need to serve. We need to substantiate the gospel that we say that we believe. But if we never open up our mouths, primarily because we're afraid that people will respond in a way that we don't like, we're not going to see conversion. We're not going to see repentance. People aren't going to be confronted with their sin. They're not going to have any thirst for the good news because they don't know the bad news. 
And so we've, we've got to change in that. Some of us, however, and, and, and this is sometimes true of me, but I realize this on a church level, some of us, like, we're not necessarily afraid. Like, some of you have confidence that God will use His Word to convert people, but, but we're just not rehearsed. We're not practiced at being able to talk through the gospel with people. And so, here's what we did. Yesterday, we had a community leader training, and it was fantastic. Almost all of our community leaders were here. They understood, like, they've planned out their term. It's going to be an exciting term for communities this fall. But, but one of the things that we gave them was a case study. Because as you get into the church being scattered in your homes, where you're supposed to rehearse the gospel and to declare it to one another, I've realized not everybody's super well practiced at being able to declare the gospel. And so I said, okay, let's take a minute and let's, let's discuss some things that might be happening among your community. What are you going to do as a community leader if you have a, a, a new family that starts coming out? Let's say it's a husband and his wife. Maybe they grew up in the church. They have a couple of kids, and they start showing up at your community. And you've done a great job of creating a safe space where you can talk about the things that are upsetting you. And over the course of a couple of weeks, the husband starts to open up, and he says, guys, I, I'm feeling a little bit depressed lately. What are you going to do? Sometimes we, we just kind of stop right there and you're like, thanks for sharing that. I'm going to pray for you. And we don't gospel it, right? We don't tell them the good news. We don't ask them any more questions. And I said, let's say you did a good job of that and a little bit more comes out. Guys, I'm feeling depressed and, and my sadness and in my depression, it, it's leading me to come home and on a nightly basis, I'm, I'm drinking probably a little more than I should. And, and, and in a couple of these nights where I've really maybe gone a little too far, I've been reaching out to an old girlfriend. These are the problems that we're facing, right? This is a reality for people in our lives, in our community. This is a reality for some of us in this room. And if our communities aren't really practiced at being able to say, what sort of satisfaction are you looking for? What is it that's causing you to feel this sense of despair? Then we're not going to be able to present the gospel very clearly. And so we took some time to say, Let, let's stop in those moments. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. Let's ask questions like, what is it about the gospel that you're not believing? That, that's what we want to do. And so communities is a great opportunity to do that, to not just share the surface levels of our life, but to dig in a little bit deeper and to ask some of those tougher questions. Some of us need practice at that, and that's a great place to do it. Now, some of us, um, we, we have a little bit of the practice but what we're not doing is we're not applying it to ourselves. We're on a mission to go and find out where is everybody else failing to believe the gospel and, and neglecting to ask ourselves those same tough questions. Asking ourselves, where am I not believing that Jesus' resurrection is more powerful than the sin that seems to have its grip on me? Why, why do I not believe that Jesus has come out of the grave and that He has overcome this for me? Who am I sharing the, 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 the realities of, I don't believe the gospel. Where am I sharing? And so some of us aren't proclaiming the gospel to others because we recognize we're hypocrites in our own lives. And so I want to give you the freedom to start asking those questions of yourself. Where am I not believing the truth of the gospel? And some of us aren't declaring it because we believe that if we're practiced and we say the certain words, like in a formula, A, A, B, C, I'm going to get the result of X, Y, Z. 
I, I have my undergraduate degree is in, is in counseling psychology. And I come from a branch of, of psychology that calls itself nuthetic counseling. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but nuthetic but counseling is essentially taking Scripture, applying it to people's problems, and, and seeing God supernaturally and miraculously, and sometimes maybe even superstitiously and magically solve all of their problems. Here, here's the, the big problem with that. We are more than just brains on a stick, right? We have this thing in here, a heart and affections and feelings, and sometimes we know what truth is, and we don't feel like doing it. And, and so what we need to, to realize is that you can't always give a couple of Bible verses and expect that to magically change people's lives. We, we need to build the, the reality of those truths in a way that is appealing and expedient so people find Christ satisfying, like what we sang this morning. And that takes work, and it doesn't always work in a formulaic way. And some of us aren't proclaiming the gospel because it takes more work than just saying a couple verses. And listen, I don't want to downplay any of this. The Word of God is quick and powerful. It can change people's lives. But the reality of our experience is that I don't know any of you that came to faith because as you were driving along, you pulled up behind somebody that had John 3.16 on the bumper, right? And you're like, oh, that's true, right? I'm going to repent of all my sins. I'm going to commit to a church, right? It, it can happen, right? Somebody's going to come up to me afterward and be like, I actually became a believer that way. Awesome. Good for you. That's not typically the way it works, but praise God, okay? No, it, it works by by seeing the Word of God applied to our lives. And so, we've, we've got to have this constant proclamation, revelation, and response. In the words of the Apostle Paul, from his letter, his first letter that we have to the Corinthians, here's what we need. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, and I'll include sisters, because we got a lot of sisters in here, amen? I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, that you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. See, see, the gospel is what transforms us. Hearing the truth of what God is doing is what transforms us. Now, in Jonah, he only had the bad news of the gospel. In 40 days, God is going to overthrow this city. God is angry with you, and that caused the people to repent. They were a little bit hopeless in their repentance, right? They're saying, maybe God will relent of the disaster that He's threatened us. We have the hope and the promise that He will. Because Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, he says, here's the gospel that I want to remind you of, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So here's the bad news. You are a sinner, Right? You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven until you come to terms with the reality that God loves you, but you have resisted him to the point of death. God came to us in love and we killed him. You're a sinner. That's the bad news. God is angry with your sin. Your sin is going to unravel your life. Your sin is going to destroy the lives of the people around you. And God is not going to stand for it. That's the bad news. The good news is Christ died for our sins that he was buried, that 
He rose from the dead and that He appeared. And what that means is that God takes you as a sinner and He takes all those sins and He removes them. He buries them in a tomb. He overcomes them and then He appears, which means He appears and empowers us with the resurrection power to see sin not have its grip on us anymore. We are free to not sin. And that's incredibly good news, isn't it? We have the full promise of what Nineveh was hoping for. Maybe God will relent. He does relent because all of His anger is poured out on Jesus instead of me. And that is incredibly good news. It's what saves us. And so we don't call people to a hopeless repentance as Jonah did. We have good news. He was buried. He rose. He's appearing. He's pursuing you now. Will you trust and believe this? That's what we want to give to the people that are around us that we love. That's the hope that we want to offer them. God's pursuit is accomplished through the proclamation of His Word. Paul, in another place in Romans, says, how are people going to believe if they don't hear? And so he, he wants to send us out as proclaimers of His good news. We want to send you out as proclaimers of God's good news. So what does that look like? I've got two points and each one has a couple of subpoints under it. The first one is this. The first one is the requirements that accompany our proclamation of God's pursuit. It's going to include two things. So here are the requirements. Number one, it's going to require communion. It's going to require communion. It's going to require communion with God, and it's going to require communion with people. So here's what I mean. With God, it's going to require that we pray to God. Listen to what Paul, an apostle who spent time with the resurrected Jesus, says to the Thessalonians as he continues his ministry of church planting. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And so what he's saying is, I came to you proclaiming this truth, and it had an effect on your hearts. It softened you. You were converted from the enemies of God to the friends and the family of God, and now I'm going to go on, and I'm asking, commune with God. Ask Him to bless the Word as it continues to go forth. If, if we are going to proclaim a Word with any sense of effectiveness, it's going to come through Communion with God, praying to Him, asking Him to bless the words, allowing the truth of God to penetrate our own hearts so that when we tell it to other people, it resonates, right? God's Word has to penetrate our hearts before it does so on the hearers. And, and this is one of the reasons why when I get up here, I try to be really vulnerable. I, I try to share with you, like, I don't have it all figured out. Honestly, I'm only about a week ahead of you because I'm studying the Bible a week ahead so I can present it on a Sunday, Amen. That's it. But, but God's Word, it has to have its effect on our hearts before it's really going to have an effect on the hearers. And this is going to be a, a problem for Jonah. We're going to see that like he struggled to really allow it to, to change him, and we're going to look at that next week, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But uh, that's a week ahead. This week, communion with God. We want to spend time with Him and ask Him to bless, uh, bless His Word. Let it change us so that it can change others. Secondly, we need to have communion with people. We need to know what they're up against. I don't know if you caught this, but Jonah was sent into that great city that took three days to go across. He had to go in at least a third of the way. He didn't start preaching from the outside of the city. 
He didn't create the holy fortress and keep everybody out. He had to go in to the people to be able to declare the truth to them. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to go into the people. We have to go into their lives. The light has to penetrate the darkness. And, and I come from a background where it was like, come out from among them, be separate. No, man, we have to go in. We have to become friends with people. We have to hear their stories. We have to know what's going on. We have to be present. We have to be their friends. And so take inventory of your life. Who do you spend most of your time with? If it's all believing people, you're not going into the great city. And they're going to be left hopeless. And in 40 days, God will overturn their city and there'll be no one to warn them. And so don't say that you love them if you're not willing to go in among them as a light among the darkness and declare truth to them. There has to be communion with God, and there has to be communion with people. We don't get to stand on a street corner and just yell at people. We have to love them. We have to earn the right to be heard. Communion with people is essential if if there's going to be the proper response. Secondly, not only is communion required, clarity. Clarity is required. When Jonah goes into the city, in the original language, it's only five words, and it translates to, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was simple and it was direct. Here's what is going to happen. We want to be simple and we want to be direct with people. What you're doing angers God and he will not put up with it forever. We need to be clear about that. We need to be direct about that. We can't shade over it. We can't like do the bait and switch. We just have to say, what you're doing angers God. How do I know that? Well, he says it in his word. I, I don't know if, if you're experiencing great joy out of this, but I know how it ends, and it's not going to end well. And I love you enough to say what you're doing angers God. I want to be clear about that. That, that becomes the bad news. Right? And then we want to turn to the hope, and there's power to overcome it. There's forgiveness no matter what you've done. No matter what you've done, there can be hope and forgiveness because Jesus has overcome it. And now he's pursuing you. He's appearing to you. Don't harden your heart. Soften it. Receive him. Believe it by faith. And this is what we hope for. The hopeful result of our proclamation has three things that it includes. The first thing is concern. As we tell people this truth, we don't want them to just brush it off. And and I need to be really clear. These are the hoped-for results. It doesn't always happen this way. When Jesus appeared and he proclaimed truth, people hardened their hearts, and he was murdered. You might be made fun of. You might even be persecuted. The hoped-for response is that it will start to take root in the hearts of people. The first thing that we see that happens is they get concerned. In verse 5, they call for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, and they sit in ashes. This is a public sign of mourning. They're sad about what their sin is causing in their culture. Right? What we know is that they had been violent. And so the king says, hey, let's maybe stop being violent. They become sad about it. They become concerned. And then that sadness goes another layer deeper. And one of the other hopeful responses is that it would become a conviction. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so what the king has done is he has declared about himself and his people that they are violent and that they are evil. 
That's where we have to come if we're going to have a relationship with God, right? We have to come to terms with the fact that we are violent, that we are evil, that we have killed God. That has to become a conviction. That's true about me personally. We have to be concerned about it. Yes, oh my goodness, I did that? Oh, yeah, because deep down, I'm an evil person. There is violence in my hands. And then what we want that to to result in is we don't want to leave people in their shame. We want to see them saved. In verse 8, it also says, let them call out mightily to God. So that third hopeful result of our proclamation is a calling out. We want people not to be left in their shame, but we want them to call out to God, to confess that He is the true God, that, that beyond Him there are no others. There is no other satisfying joy other than Jesus saving His people. And if, if we would be faithful in proclaiming that, there's that hard reality again, that eye-opening reality. Those who were once our enemies and God's enemies become His friends and His family. If we would only proclaim that truth if we would do that with communion and, and if we would do that uh, with clarity, then we can see God's gospel go in, create concern, conviction, and a calling out. God's pursuit is accomplished through the proclamation of God's Word. We want to proclaim God's Word with communion and with clarity, hoping it will bring these things, these concerns, these convictions, these calling out and repentance. So again, God's enemies become his friends, and become part of his family. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. They're going to lead us now that there's been revelation in a time of response. So um, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word because it is quick and powerful. Help us to see that Jesus is the good news. Help us to see that we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim with fruitfulness, the hard truths, that God is angry with our sin, but that sin doesn't stop His love and pursuit for us. We pray that as we declare that to the people around us, that it would bring concern, conviction, and a calling out for the mercy that You richly provide. Would You empower us with boldness for the joy of Your people and the glory of Your name? Amen.